Uh, let's bow and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to, to come to your word. God, we pray that you'd be with us. We pray that you'd bless this preacher hiding behind the cross of Calvary. God, uh, in us, remove wrong thinking and error in our in our minds and, and build us up with good teaching from your word. God, God uh, strengthen your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you would please turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 10. Uh, we, we are not a church where we jump around all the time, but we are in a short, a, a, um, a short topical series on the church. And this morning, as you turn to Romans 10, I'd like to pose this question that gets presented to me dozens of times each and every week. Do you want your church to prosper? The question, do you get that? I mean, the question comes to me through marketing emails that are sent to my inbox, sometimes through our church's webpage. Do you want your church to prosper? Sometimes it's said like this. Do you want to see your church grow? Do, do you want more visitors? I got that one the other day. Do you want more visitors at your church? Some questions like this, something stated similarly comes to me on a regular basis. These are businesses that are trying to sell something. Website building, website optimization, email blasting services, marketing tools, coaching staff and various things. All of these businesses presenting strategies to help the local church be what you want it to be. These church growth businesses tell us that we can have successful churches by staying relevant to society, this is actually comes from different various, various places that, that we've taken this. Uh, staying relevant to society, conducting surveys of our target demographic, staying current on the latest statistics, data, and trends by creating focus groups. And these things can help our church establish our brand. And we can, we can publicize, better establish our brand by holding non-religious classes, by doing ecumenically diverse activities, so joining up with people of other denominations, of other beliefs, and, and maybe even of other faiths. And one of, the main, one of the main focuses that, that we see from these church growth experts is on improving your virtual services. That is our live stream. Improve your virtual service. I think they have realized that many people don't want to attend church, so they recommend bringing a church-like experience to the living room or to the device for those who can take that in and be where they want to be. Brothers and sisters, we appreciate the technology that enables uh, hearing of the sermon, hearing of the worship service for those who are sick and infirm, those who are unable to attend. But we know this live stream is not church. And the answer for the church is not to virtualize our services. 
having a strategy. I mean, if you're a businessman, you should you should have a strategy for your business if you want to grow your business. And and some of these things that are suggested by these church growth experts, some of them, hear me, might be okay for a church to do. Some things might be good for a church to utilize. Uh, I've seen churches with billboards. That's that's that might be a good idea. Signage at the building where the church meets. I don't know if y'all know this. We have a sign. We have, we have a nice new sign. Uh, and our deacons display that sign each and every Lord's Day. We thank them for that work. Some churches take out newspaper ads or write newspaper columns, though that may be for a bygone generation. Probably the most common thing that churches do today is to have a website and, and our church has a website we have a website and, and these things are not sinful these are modes and methods of communicating that we are and who we are uh, and they can be very helpful but we must church be be careful not to put our trust in these modes and methods relying on those things to build our church the New Testament is very clear that Jesus Christ builds his church. He is building his church. And it's, it's also clear that God adds to the church. So if we, if we put our trust in marketing and then we start seeing growth and God's not in it, uh-oh, we're in for trouble. So we, we place our faith and our hope and our trust in the fact that Jesus is building his church and that God adds to the church. So whatever things we might employ to, 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 to make us known, we pray for God's blessing on our church. And, and if our stated end church is to glorify God, then we look for a strategy for the church and for church growth. We look to his instruction. We look to the Bible for our strategy for what we should do and what we should not do. We know from texts like 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 18, that it is the preaching of the cross, which is the power of God, the preaching of the cross. Even though preaching is not popular in our day, as our brother just read for us, there comes a day when people will not endure sound preaching, but we'll want to have their ears tickled. Brothers, we live in that day. We live there. But it is the biblical strategy, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. The New Testament churches planted and organized by the apostles according to the command of Christ, those New Testament churches maintain Christ-centered preaching as a primary, as the primary means <laughs> And since God has ordained means to save and sanctify his people, those means, especially preaching, are our strategy in the church. The ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Now, a preacher speaking about the importance of preaching, a pastor outlining the duties and responsibilities of the church toward their pastors, that might sound self-serving. 
and, and if you know me, you know I, I feel an inherent inadequacy to be a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I hear other men when they say, I, when they are either have been called to preach or they have a desire to preach and they say, I just don't feel adequate. And you know what I tell them? I say, you don't do that. If you, you're adequate. No, no. What I tell them is, you don't feel adequate? Good. You're not. You're not. It's Christ who strengthens us. So, so this inadequacy in me might lead me to have a tendency to shy away from things that people may not want to hear. Things especially that sound self-serving. I, I might just say, man, I don't want to. I don't want to address that. So if, but if I fail to preach the full counsel of the word of God, the perfect counsel of God, then I have number one, disobeyed the mandate of God. I've disobeyed my command. And secondly, church, I've done you a disservice. And if you hear something and you say that sounds self-serving, I think I'll tune out and I won't listen or I will develop an attitude about it right at the outset. Then you will be disobeying God's command for you. And in both cases, the local church suffers as a result. So I'm going to take up the task of preaching the full counsel and you take up the task of hearing and obeying and the local church will prosper, will benefit. So today we will hear things which are familiar to us. Some of the verses that we will read, you will say, I've memorized that verse. I know that verse. I use that verse regularly. Uh, but we have used, we've, we've taken those verses and lifted them out of their context. And today we will see these verses in relation to the church and to the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. We begin with our text in Romans chapter 10. Some of us are very familiar with Romans 10, 13. That's where we begin. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great verse that is, right? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And many of us have memorized that. Many of us use that. But we want today to read the larger section. And we want to see not only that Jesus saves those who call on him in repentant faith, but we'll also see the means that Christ has ordained for the saving of sinners. Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, we'll read through 15. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as this is written, and we read this, this quotation from uh, earlier, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Here we have in Romans 10, 13 through 15, this beautiful statement, Jesus will save those who call upon him. But we also see the path that leads a sinner to call upon Jesus. The call calling upon Jesus. That calling upon Jesus comes from faith. It comes from belief. We see that in verse 14. And that belief is the fruit of the gospel preached. When the sinner hears the gospel of Jesus preached and the Holy Spirit works effectually in that sinner's heart, faith is born and they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. This faith, which leads to the calling on Jesus, comes when that sinner 
hears about Jesus, how are they going to call upon Jesus in whom they have not heard? And by the way, don't think, well, everybody's heard of Jesus. They might have heard the name, but the idea that so many people carry about who Jesus is doesn't come from the Bible. It just comes from what they've made up. They need to hear about the biblical Jesus. So now at the end of verse 14, it asks, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a preacher? And maybe you can surmise ways that people can hear about Jesus. They can hear the gospel without a preacher. But this teaches us something right here from the word of God. This teaches us that God's way for a sinner to hear the gospel is preaching. The idea is that preaching is central to what we do. And, and preaching being central to the church it's not something that some people came up with. It's not something that I came up with to create myself a job. It's not something that was invented in church history. It comes from scripture that preaching is central to the church. So we continue in verse 15. We see that it's not enough that a man has a desire to preach or that he feels some internal urge to preach. A man who is called by God to preach will be approved and sent by the church. We see that continuing in verse 15. And I would add here that in the course of a pastor's ministry, I mean, you have that desire. That's one of the first things when I talk to young men who are entering ministry or who have expressed the desire. I talk to them about their desire for ministry. So a man who doesn't have a desire will not enter the ministry and should not enter the ministry. But, but a preacher who enters the ministry has a desire. But in the course of ministry, there are times when that urge to preach may be invisible. It may be silenced. It, it may be uh, hard to find. And rather than an urge to preach, sometimes a, a preacher, a pastor has an urge to quit. Because of weariness because of the difficulty of the work, because of various other reasons, a preacher might feel like quitting. This is not something I read about. It's something I know about. But in those days, a preacher who feels like quitting can remember that this is not a job that he took to himself. God gave him an initial desire to take up the work and then a local church body affirmed that calling by appointing him to ministry. So in those days when he feels like quitting, he has to say, I'll keep my hands in the plow. So in this way, a pastor is called by God and approved by the church. And, and we see both are required, the, the internal call of God and the approval and sending of the church. We see this in, in Acts 13 when Paul and Barnabas were called and sent out. Acts 13, we're gonna do a lot of moving around and if you wanna keep up, that's great. Acts 13, we're only gonna read a couple of verses, verse two through four. Uh, and I'll tell you some places that I want you to turn so you can see. Acts 13, two through four, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, some of you have asked me recently about fasting. Uh, this is one example that we see in scripture where fasting is called for, and that is in the appointment of a, of a preacher. Uh, so when they uh, ministered the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. So who called them? The Holy Spirit called them. 
And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they, the church, sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute, I thought the church sent them. And now it says the Holy Ghost sent them, which is, the answer is yes, <laughs> both. Uh, so being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, they departed into solution from thence went on to Cyprus. So we see this pattern of being called by the Holy Spirit and affirmed and sent by the church. There's a two-part call of preachers. God chooses the man and then the church through prayer and fasting affirms that man's calling. And the text tells us they were sent by the church and then concludes that they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost. And this is the process used by God to place a man in pastoral ministry. It's to give him a desire that is then affirmed by the church, both being necessary. And today I would like to address pastors and preaching under two main headings. Pastors and preaching in the church under two main headings. First heading, pastors of churches. And the second heading, admittedly will be very short, lay preachers. And, and it's not short because it's unimportant. It's not short because I don't have anything to say about it. It's short because when you get to so many pages, you have to say, all right, I don't have time. So we better y'all listen fast. So pastors of churches and lay preachers, I will refer to our confession, chapter 26, specifically paragraphs 10 and 11, as we work through this and, and paragraphs 10 and 11 of chapter 26 will serve as sort of an outline for us as we consider these various texts of scripture which lead us to the conclusions at which we have arrived. First, pastors of churches, or we could say pastors and churches, uh, pastors of churches, pastors and churches together. Our confession says this in paragraph 10, chapter 26. It begins with this statement, the work of pastors being constantly to attend to the service of Christ in his church in the ministry of the word and prayer with watching for their souls as they must as as they that must give an account to him. There are many things, even in that short little statement that we could drill down into, like the confession mentions here, the work of pastors being constant. There's some things to think about. There are those who think about the work of a pastor as not being work. I've had people say, well, you don't work. <laughs> and, and our confession and the word of God tells us that this is work. And, and let me say this. It doesn't help the situation that there are men who have taken up the office of pastor who treat the, the job as though it is not working. And that's a shame. And those men should not be in that office. They treat it as though it is not a real job. Some people in the church treat it as though it is not a real job, but it is work. And men who are in the office must work and they should work. Uh, the confession says constant, diligent, diligently. But I'd like to focus on something else, not just the work. I'd like to focus on the responsibility. They, uh, I have these and I worked on alliteration, alliteration this week. The onus of preaching. The onus of preaching. Um, onus is a word that means responsibility or burden. Let's consider as we think of the onus, the responsibility, the burden of preaching. Let's consider Acts chapter 6 verses 2 through 4. So the twelve, that would be the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of the task. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. From this early point in the church, it was necessary for pastors, men responsible for the spiritual feeding of the sheep, to devote themselves to the task of preaching, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what's in mind here when I mention prayer is public prayer and public preaching. So pastors, pastors certainly should be praying privately, right? There should be private prayer. There should be prayer uh, in family worship, family gatherings. But pastors, what's meant here in giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word is public prayer and public preaching. The worship service of the gathered assembly. And they were devoting themselves to public prayer and to preaching. We also see instruction to this effect in Acts chapter 20. We'll read verses 20. 7 and 28. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel, the complete counsel, the perfect counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We find here that faithful ministry of the word is marked by at least three things. We're going to see here three things. Perfect, the perfect counsel of God, the whole counsel, that it's preeminently systematic and that it's permanently expositional. Perfect counsel of God, preeminently systematic, permanently expositional. The perfect counsel or the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 27, as we just read, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. How much of the word of God should we preach? All of it. There are those who tell us, no, just the New Testament. No, all of it. The whole counsel of God. And I would remind you that when Paul said this, he only had the Old Testament. That's what he was preaching from. He declared the whole counsel of God at that time in history from the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament as well, and we are to preach it all. Now, I'm 52. I'll be 53 before, you know, before you blink good. I'll be 53. I do not have time to finish preaching every verse of the Bible. I think that's a great thing, but I don't have time to preach every, every bit of it. But in order to preach the whole council, here's what we do. We preach. We preach from the Old Testament and from the New Testament exactly what it says. And we preach and we'll get here expositionally and systematically. Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole council of God. He said that in Acts. But then to the Corinthians, he said something else. He said, for I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So in one place he's saying, I preach the whole council. And in another place he's saying, I only preach Christ and him crucified. So do we have different, different preaching strategies for different groups? In one place you preach the whole council. In another place you pre preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ crucified is not different from the whole council of the word. 
The crucified, risen, and coming again Christ is the theme on every page of Scripture. Every page of the Bible. So when we preach about David and Goliath, we must preach Christ from that text. When we preach Genesis chapter 1, yes, we talk about creation being done in six days, but we preach Christ from that text. Not simply to tell an Old Testament story and then shoehorn Jesus in at the end. I've seen Pat, I grew up with that kind of preaching where, where you have been told you preach Jesus and then they tell the story of David and Goliath and then at the end, oh yeah, and Jesus died on the cross. And just shoehorn Jesus in. That's not it. It's preaching Christ from every text. Now here, I'm going to do something unprecedented, especially for me. I'm going to disagree with Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon in Instructing Preachers said this, preach the text and then make a beeline to the cross. Preach the text and then make a beeline to the cross. Well, what's he, what, what do you get from that? What you get from that is preach the text and then shoehorn Jesus in at the end. Now, I'm not telling you that's what Spurgeon did. I'm telling you that's what he said, and I disagree with that statement. Preachers must, faithful preachers must preach Christ from the text. And if we don't know how to preach Christ from a certain text, we are not prepared to preach that text. We must preach the perfect counsel. Faithful preaching in the church of God must be preeminently systematic. We use the term often, maybe you've, you've heard it, systematic exposition. And if you don't know what that is, what is that? Those sound like preacher words. Well, they kind of are, but we need to know what that is. Systematic exposition. What we mean by that, others have called it this, chronological exposition, preaching through whole books of the Bible, starting in chapter one, verse one, working through line by line, paragraph by paragraph. And this kind of preaching, this kind of systematic exposition must be the steady diet of the church. Here are a few reasons why we must we, why we must preach preeminently systematic exposition. First of all, to preach systematic exposition is to preach the Bible in the way that God gave it. God didn't say, all right, I'm going to give the Romans, I'm going to give them uh, Romans 6.23, and I'm going to give them Romans 3.23, and I'm going to give them Romans 5.8, and I'm going to give them Romans. That's not how he gave it. How did he give it? He gave it. It's, it's okay to memorize individual verses. But when we preach, when we study, we should start at the beginning and work through because that's how God gave the book. He did not give just disjointed verses. He gave the whole book of Revelation. He gave the whole book of Romans. He gave the whole book of Genesis. He gave the whole book. That's how we should do it. That's how he gave it. Secondly, preaching systematic exposition demands that the preacher follow the text. It demands that the preacher doesn't make the sermon, but the text makes the sermon. The preacher doesn't shape the sermon to say what he wants it to say. The text shapes the sermon. This prevents a preacher from preaching hobby horse topics. This prevents a preacher from getting his favorite stuff and just staying on that so that every sermon ends with the same, oh, well, that sermon said the same thing as the last one because it's his favorite thing to say. 
It binds the preacher to what the Bible says. Second, uh, thirdly, consecutive nature of systematic exposition means the book and not the preacher sets the preaching agenda. Now we are currently in a short excursus on the church and then we're going to return to our systematic exposition of Ecclesiastes. Does anybody know where we're going to go in Ecclesiastes when we get back there? I heard somebody say chapter 7. That's where we're going to go. I, I love um, John Calvin was kicked out, not only kicked out of his church, but kicked out of his town as he was working through, I forget what book it was, as he's working through a book of the Bible. Let's just say it's Colossians uh, 3. And he gets to, in his systematic exposition, Colossians 3, he's kicked out of the church, kicked out of town, and he comes back, I believe, three years later. And you know what he said? Well, good morning. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll pick up in the next verses. <laughs> that means believe in systematic exposition, and I do too. I, I do too. This binds the preacher. Systematic exposition lets the book and not the preacher set the agenda. What's next is what's next. And this helps the preacher. Boy, it helps the preacher to know what to preach next. I would hate to have to come up with a new thing, a new idea, a new topic every week. That would be torture. Just, yeah. Um, but this also helps the preacher and it helps the hearer have a deeper knowledge of the scripture, have a deeper knowledge of the word of God as we study through a book. We know the book better by studying all of it and studying it in order. And because we know it better, we love it more after we have done this work. Some of you have said to me, this Ecclesiastes stuff is great. And, and hey, many of us didn't have that opinion about Ecclesiastes before we started studying systematically, expositorily through the book. It brings us to love the Word of God more. And it, present, it prevents the preacher from doing what I'm just going to tell you I would do, skipping some stuff. Boy, as a preacher, you come to some stuff and you're like, man, I don't, I don't want to address that. I don't want to do it. But here's the problem. If I preached last week from chapter 3 and I came and preached this week and said, now to chapter 6, I'm going to get feedback. I've gotten feedback just on this short topical excursus. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I've gotten feedback. I think I wrote that in my, in my notes somewhere. I've gotten feedback, but I love that I've gotten this feedback because what it tells me is, church, your appetite is set for systematic exposition. Praise God for that. We need to know that that should be our steady diet. I thought about this and I probably shouldn't tell you, but, but my mother had some regular things. She fed us. Spaghetti comes to mind. It was a regular thing. But every once in a while, salmon patties. I didn't love them, but they weren't going to be the regular thing. They were just every once in a while. Okay, so a topical sermon every once in a while. Uh, now, we got to skip some stuff. We got to get on. We got the perfect council. We've got systematic. And, and I want to move because this feeds right into, we said preeminently systematic. So there are times when we're, I mean, first of all, primarily systematic, but there are times when we're topical, but permanently expositional. What do you call preaching that's not expositional? It ain't preaching. 
Preaching must be permanently expositional. Even when we depart from consecutively preaching through a book of the Bible, we never depart from exposition. Sometimes it's necessary to take a detour, to take a brief time and, and, and move away from our consecutive systematic preaching and work through a topic. But even when we jump to another thing, jump to a different place in the Bible, we still treat that text like Holy Scripture. We never read into or preach into a text what we want to see there. There's a word for that. It's called eisegesis. Eisegesis. And we never want to hear eisegesis. That is not preaching. That's adultery. Adulterating the word of God. By pouring whatever we want to mean, by pouring our meaning into the Bible, we can make the Bible say anything we want to make it say. And then we don't bring God's people to the word of God. We have violated the scripture and we bring them to our opinion. We must be careful not to do that. We must practice exposition. Now we use the word eisegesis. The word for exposition is exegesis. Exegesis, exposition. What do we hear in that? Expose. Maybe you think of an expose. What is an expose? Did you read that expose in the newspaper? It's where they have uncovered a thing. Where a thing was covered and they made it come to light. They revealed a thing that was there. When we expose, when we uncover the word of God, that is expositional preaching we uncover the word of God we uncover its meaning and its application to our lives when we bring out the true meaning of a text of scripture when we bring out the true meaning what do we do we dismantle wrong ideas about that text of scripture we dismantle wrong thinking and we bring the hearers to the plain exposed truth of the text. That's what preaching should be. I had a woman say to me one time, well, all you did was just say what the Bible says. And I said, thank you. That's what I was trying to do. And that's what every preacher who preaches the word of God should be doing. So we've covered preachers and preaching. Now our confession turns to the church and to the responsibility of the church to its pastors. Again, from our confession, continuing in paragraph 10, it is incumbent on the church to whom they minister, that is to whom the pastors minister, not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them all their good things according to their ability, so that they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs, and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others. And this, re this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that they that preach the gospel should live by the gospel. Folks, it's not looking good. It's late, and I got too much to go. This portion of our confession, I gotta, I'll, I'll find an offering, I promise. This portion of our confession addresses how the church corporately 
and the members individually care for their pastor. It uses words, and we see these words in scripture, and we hear these words as we talk about it, respect, honor, and giving good things. And, and certainly when we talk about a church's treatment toward their pastor, it encompasses attitude in word and in action toward the pastor. And, and we must we must not only respect our pastors, but we must teach our children to respect our pastors and, and do that also by modeling it in front of them. But the main thrust of this instruction from scripture respect, honor, giving good things is the financial provision for the pastor. When you think of honor, maybe you've heard the term honorarium. When a person goes somewhere and speaks uh, on a college campus, they get an honorarium. It is honor, but what it's meant by that is they got financial um, benefit. They, they got a check. We will consider the church's responsibility to pay their pastors under two headings, the oughtness of paying and then the obligation to perform. This is the church's obligation to their pastor, the oughtness of paying. Galatians 6, let's do this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9 in your Bible so you can follow there. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 9. But from Galatians, I don't know what I said, Galatians 6, 6 and 7. The one who is taught the word, think about that, is that me? Who's taught the word? The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Very next verse, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Have you ever realized that that sowing and reaping verse that you're so familiar with that you memorize that maybe you quote from time to time about sowing and reaping we tell our children that right <laughs> what's over man so if that's really also have you ever realized that this is in the context of a church providing for their pastor what's over man so if that's really also reap church when you provide for your pastor's financial need in a way that he can devote time to study and preparation to teach and preach you reap the benefits you are better for it. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this, Paul writing, verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? And he means working in a secular job. Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk from the flock? I'm not speaking of these things according to human authority, am I? Or does the law also not say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Is God concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sakes it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? 
Now here Paul is arguing from Scripture and from the light of nature that the church ought to provide a good living for their pastor. Enough, as he mentions, to have a family, a wife and children. This is not barely making it. Sometimes that's what churches look for. Well, we just want our pastor to barely make it. Listen to 1 Timothy 3. No, I didn't quote it. I'm just going to refer to it. 1 Timothy 3 lists the characteristics of a pastor, those qualifications of a pastor, if you will. And among them is listed hospitality. The preacher should be hospitable. And if the provision for him and for his family is just enough, then how can he be hospitable? The old Baptist prayer of the church for their pastor, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. That's got to go away. When 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 speaks of the elders who rule well being worthy, some of you know this verse, being worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. How are we to understand double honor? I, I, I understand that to mean double salary, double pay. Now, there are more questions. If you don't, if you don't like that, let's let's drill down into it. Does that mean take what's barely making it and double that, or does it mean take the mean income of the church and double that? I, I don't know how we are to interpret that. I've never had to. <laughs> I've never, I've never myself or seen any pastor anywhere have to deal with what do we mean by double honor? Because church, so often we fall so far short of this. However, we read it, it means that a church ought to provide a very good income for the pastor. So the case is made that pastors should be provided for and the provision should be far from meager. So someone might say, well, is a church in sin when they have a bivocational pastor? It's clear in scripture that the best way for a church is that the pastor be full-time, be devoting himself only to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. But we will remember that as the apostles came to the churches, as, as Paul the apostle came to the churches, he came as a bivocational pastor. He was a pastor and a tent maker. He came working a job. The, the text of 1 Corinthians 9 picks up in the middle of verse 12. After he has made this this case that, that they have the right, it picks up in the middle of verse 12 and it says, okay, we have the right. And he says, nevertheless, and we'll pick up there, nevertheless. Nevertheless, we did not use the right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacrifices, uh, those who perform sacred services, eat of the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly at the altar share food from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So pastors ought to get their living from the gospels, but there were exceptions in Paul's ministry, and there are exceptions today. 
So is it sinful for a church to have a bivocational pastor? Sometimes when a church has plenty and is unwilling to provide for their pastor a good living, that church should repent and they should pay their pastor whatever they determine is double honor. But what if a church can't? What if a church is, they're not unwilling, but they're unable to pay their pastor in this way. It, it's important that the church maintain a heart to get to that point as soon as they can. This matter should come before other things. But when a church is not there yet, we have a bivocational pastor, just like Paul served as a bivocational pastor. And it's important to see that Paul may have been bivocational at times, but when he left a place and a new pastor was appointed there, it seems that those men were fully provided for in their ministry. We think of Timothy at Ephesus. It seems that those men were fully provided for. So most of you know I am a bivocational pastor, and this is not a sermon so that we can say we gotta have a business meeting and we gotta I'm I am I'm provided for. I have no hard feelings at all about how this church provides for me. Our church has not been able to provide all that was needed. And I would add this, the ability of the church to provide over the last, say, 10 years has greatly increased. We praise God for that. My goal is to serve, as Paul did, as a bivocational pastor, teaching and preaching and preparing you, the congregation, the church, for the man who will come after me, expecting that you will provide for him well. Well enough that it can be considered double honor, well enough that he can have a believing wife and children, well enough that he can be hospitable. That's the goal. The paying of the pastor falls under the category of ought, but sometimes it intersects in that place of can't. But the oughtness remains, and we need to know that that's the oughtness, the oughtness to pay. There are also, there's also the oughtness to participate. I'm going to skip this. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Malachi 3, 6 through 11. Malachi 3, 6 through 11. Some of you have heard a lie, and some of you have believed it. Here's the lie. Tithing is an Old Testament teaching that is not for New Testament Christians. That is a lie. Jesus, when he instructed the, the Pharisees, they were tithing in the, in the minuscule, tiny, we would say it this way, they were tithing down to the penny. But they were neglecting justice and mercy. They were neglecting what Jesus called weightier matters. And here's what Jesus instructed them. You should do the one and not neglect the other. Can I put it in different terms? You should tithe as well as do the weightier stuff. Jesus endorsed the tithe. We can go into that more. Malachi chapter 3 is a good place for you to go there. And you'll see, hey, the preacher's not preaching that we should tithe because he gets the money or because he wants the thing. The preacher's teaching that we should tithe because God says, test me in this 
and see if I will not open up the gates of heaven, the, the windows of heaven and pour out blessing upon you that you cannot, that you cannot hold. I've, I've seen people come to me and say, Pastor, we are not tithing and we think we should. And I say, well, yeah, you should. And then they do. And I've never, over nearly 30 years of ministry, I've never had one person say, that tithing thing did not work out well. Things went from bad to worse. I've never heard that testimony. I've never heard the testimony. We started tithing and things stayed the same. I've never heard that. People come back in amazement. You wouldn't believe how God is providing for us in ways that we never could have imagined. Okay, I gotta leave that because we gotta go. The church has an oughtness to pay. Christians have an opportunity to participate. And then we see this, the church believers, we have an obligation to perform. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is not talking about some silly notion of doing everything the preacher says. We joke about that. Well, wash my car and, you know, carry my golf clubs. And I don't play golf, but whatever. We joke about that. But this verse is not, and by the way, some pastors abuse that. Some pastors abuse the respect and the authority of their position. And I can tell you stories that we won't go into now for the second time. This is an instruction to you, Christian, to you, church member, to obey the pastors as they preach and teach the word of God. This is ultimately a command to obey God. But it just might sound like it came out in the voice of Todd Gill, or it might sound like it came out in the voice of Brent Friedman. But you obey God. And that's what this is for. And, and, and by the way, church, this is not eventually obeying. Some of you are good at that, eventual obedience, which we should not tolerate in our children. Why would we do that before God? This is not reluctant obedience. This is not, I'll obey, but it'll be with an attitude. <laughs> this verse says, let them, let your pastors keep watch over you with joy. <laughs> there are some things in ministry, I gotta tell you, there are some things in ministry that you will have no more joy in anything in life. There, sometimes it's just, it's just so good. But then there are times when it's grief. And, and this verse says that you should be the kind of church member, you should be the kind of Christian that allows your pastors to minister with joy and not with grief. And it doesn't say because it's better for them, though we know it would be better for us, but it says because it would be better for you. It'd be better for you. When we, when we are able to deal with you and to minister to you with joy, you reap the benefits. I need to finish this. Here's the good news. We don't have to drive to Piccadilly or Grandma's house. It's right down the, we just right down the hall. Paragraph 11 in our confession deals with lay preachers. That's what they used to call it. We don't hear that word very often now. Uh, it says this, although it be incumbent on bishops and pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching of the word by way of office. The office means we preach. Yet the work of preaching is not so particularly or peculiarly confined to them that others, also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it, 
and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. Now, the reference here that we go to is uh, Acts 11, 19 through 21. Now, when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These are church members. These are, these are men of the church preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, which when they came to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus at the hand of the Lord. And the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. These men who were not what we would call ordained pastors of the church were preaching, and God blessed it. Now, our, our confession points out, and I want to hurry, that these are men, this is not just anybody, everybody ought not preach. Some of you go, Everybody ought not preach, but those who are fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit and approved and called by the church. Fitted speaks to study, speaks to preparation, speaks to education, whether that be formal or informal. It speaks to education always continuing, fitted. And gifted speaks to the blessing of the Holy Spirit on the preaching that the man does. Fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit approved and called by the church and it says here they may and ought to preach lay preachers who are fitted and gifted by the holy spirit who are approved and called by the church may that's permission may preach and ought to preach that's an oughtness and church we should be ready to evaluate men who have a desire uh, and, and, and a want to preach it would be irresponsible to approve all men to preach but we want to listen carefully and prayerfully consider if God has fitted and gifted them. We want to see that they're diligent students of the scripture. And sometimes we'll have to say no. And sometimes we'll have to say, not right now, not, you're not ready yet, continue to work on that. But sometimes we will approve and call a man to be a lay preacher. That's what we have done here with our brother, Chris Trevino. And we call that a gifted brother. It's not an office. It's just a, it's, it's, it's indicating that he is, we believe, fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit. And he has been called and approved by the church. And we hope to see more of that. Strategy of the church is to spread the gospel and grow the saints through the preaching of the word of God. That work of preaching is first to be done by pastors and elders, those who God has appointed over a local church. The task of preaching and teaching may also be taken up by some men of the congregation who are gifted and fitted, approved and called by the church. Whoever takes up the task of preaching, it must be the perfect counsel of God, preeminently systematic, permanently exposition. And this is the primary means of grace that God's given to his church. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not given us um, to just come up with how we do church and how we focus on things. And you have not just given us to, to creatively invent these things, but you've instructed us in your word. God, help us where we may have errors, where we, we may have ideas that are not uh, bound to your word. Help us to dispense with those and help us to, uh, to be bound only to your word. 
And, and God, uh, we thank you and praise you for the blessing that you have given us for, for pastors who preach and teach, for lay preachers. And God, we pray that you would, in your wisdom, in your sovereign power, that you would fit and equip and give more men for the ministry. We give you praise and glory. Amen.